Well, thanks for joining tonight. Um, Dr. Kyler Smith is not with us tonight. He normally would be. He's out of town. So I am jumping in uh, to help out teach tonight. We're going to be continuing through our uh, series of how to study and uh, learn about the Bible and how to understand the Bible. Uh, I hope everybody has enjoyed the uh, past few festivities, the past few days, Halloween, trunk or treat. Who is already like November 1st, Christmas is on my mind, tis the season to be jolly. Is anybody, does it start today for some people? You've already got lights up. Who, who actually appreciates Thanksgiving and, Thanksgiving and wants to save that holiday for its own? There we go. I'm more in that camp, not that I have anything against the early Christmasers. I enjoy a good Christmas song every now and then too, but I'd rather save that for after Thanksgiving. So uh, like I said, we're going to be continuing through our Bible seminar tonight. Um, and understanding the Bible, understanding how to even understand the Bible, it can be a little bit of a daunting task. The Bible can be complex to understand. It can be a little bit overwhelming as we try to approach it. And so I, I want to kind of relate to that. I want to at least realize that we all understand it can be a daunting task. But if we really believe that the God of the universe has chosen to reveal himself through his word, and through the Bible, then we ought to strive to best understand it, to know how he has revealed himself through his word, to glean and to gather the truths that are revealed through his word, and to apply them to our lives as best we can. So I tell the college students when we're talking about the Bible and how God reveals himself and how he chooses to act in the world that we live in, I tell them that often God will use uh, actually the most regular and kind of ordinary and natural things to bring about some of the most extraordinary and supernatural uh, effects on our lives. And what I mean is, by way of example, we've been given a people to belong to. We've been given the church, the body of Christ, and we've just been called to gather together, to fellowship together, to worship together. Something that seems very ordinary, and yet through that, that's how we are sanctified. That's how we are built up and become more and more like Christ through something seemingly ordinary. The same goes for prayer. Prayer is something that seemingly is ordinary. We're just bringing our hearts, uh, our needs, our desires to God. We're talking to God, and yet something seemingly ordinary, it's often the way that God acts or the way that God will actually bring about change. And even the act of prayer changes us inwardly through our posture of humility. So these ordinary things bring about extraordinary change. And the same thing is with the Bible. I think oftentimes, again, we can look at the Bible as very daunting, as a supernatural book of sorts, but the Bible you have in front of you, it doesn't seem all that different at first glance, and yet God has called us to simply read it, and it's through that that he brings about supernatural change. So that's why I want us to understand how to read the Bible well, how to understand the Bible well, when I was ordained here at Hickory Grove not too long ago, I was given uh, this Bible. It was a very special gift. And in the front cover, Pastor Clint wrote a very kind uh, word of encouragement and a, a note to me. And one of the parts of it that really stood out was he said, My prayer is that your soul is daily refreshed by this book. In it are the words of life. And so this is simply no ordinary book. Contained within these covers is where we'll find the words of life. We'll be confronted with the God of the universe as he is revealing himself to us. Our creator is actually speaking to his creation through 
the Bible, through his word. So I want us to take seriously that call. I want us to understand this book, and I want us to learn from it. So that's my goal, to help equip you all to do that. So just to recap a little bit, over the past few weeks, just to backtrack, the first few weeks of the seminar, Pastor Kyler looked at how we learn to see the Bible, and then he moved from learning to see the Bible into learning, um, last, uh, learning to read the Bible. And then last week, he covered how we learn the context of the Bible. And now there's many ways that we can think about biblical context. Uh, that word can be somewhat of an umbrella term. So even tonight, you might hear me say the word context. It, it still applies. So think of context as the umbrella term. Last week, maybe um, you could say you guys looked at literary context. So um, what you looked at was then how we understand key words in the Bible, key words in, in the original language and what they mean, and then how those key words make up the verses and understanding those verses in context of maybe an overall paragraph and then moving in larger scope from the paragraph to um, the chapter and then how that chapter sits within the context of maybe the overall book of the Bible. So you saw how different words have different meanings, how they're used, and how we need to understand the context. So literary context is important because, as you discussed last week, if you get that wrong, if you don't read verses in context or chapters in context, things downstream from that can go awry really quickly. So tonight, we want to still kind of pull from that idea of understanding context, but we want to understand it maybe uh, more widely so that we understand how we learn about the background of the Bible, the background as context. Now, uh, as we do each week, before we just jump into maybe a bunch of how-tos and, and practical kind of steps for understanding the background, I want to give a little bit of a foundation of why exactly it's important that we know the background or why it's important that we ought to learn the background before just jumping right into the Bible. So, why learn the background? Well, first, the background is important because the Bible was written in time and space. The Bible was written in time and space. And what I mean by this is that the Bible is different from other religious texts in the way that it was created, in the way that it was compiled, in the way that it was written. So, uh, like I said earlier, the Bible is a complex book in a lot of different ways. Uh, the Bible was written over a period of more than 1,500 years from beginning to end. It wasn't just kind of zapped out of thin air to one author or in some sort of vision. It was actually compiled over time. Uh, not only was the time span diverse, spanning multiple different generations, ages, nations, but the actual locations in which the Bible was written was also just as diverse. So various parts of the Bible were written in various parts of the world. Obviously, most known in the Middle East on the continent of Asia, but even parts of it throughout Europe and even parts of it in Northern Africa. Um, as we understand the Bible, I have a, a definition here. Don't worry about writing it down. It's rather wordy. We'll kind of work through it a little bit. Um, but it's from a pastor. His name's Vodi Bauckham. He's a pastor uh, serving in Zambia. And he uses this definition for how we ought to understand the Bible. He says, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that take place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. And we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit. 
And essentially, that's just a long way to say that the Bible is unique in its existence. Uh, the creation of the Bible is unique because it was written about real places, in real places, and kind of real time space about actual events that happened, real events that actually happened. Uh, like I said a minute ago, it's different from other religious texts. So if you think about maybe the Book of Mormon, uh, the Book of Mormon has one source for it, which is Joseph Smith. He has one um, source of the information that he gathered, which was through a vision that was using, uh, to his account, specific glasses that he could use to read these tablets that no one else has ever seen, that no one else can verify. And so the Book of Mormon is more particular because there's only one source, there's only one person who's kind of authored it in, in this case. And so that one really can't be verified in other sense. Uh, whereas the Bible is actually covering events that actually happened, we have multiple vantage points of those events uh, so that you can actually confirm the validity of those events. Even furthermore, there are times that the Bible will point to other names of people by way to say, if you don't believe my story, ask this person, or this person also saw it, or this group of people also saw that happen. So the Bible has other ways that it verifies itself. It was written in real time about real events. The Quran is another example of that. There's one person who has received some sort of vision of truth, and that person was the prophet Muhammad, and it's his word against anybody else's. So you see, the Bible is distinguished from those two others. But the Bible isn't only uh, distinguished in that sort of way, but it's also distinguished from other religious texts in that it's not just a source of wisdom and philosophy. Though we understand there is wisdom literature in the Bible, the Bible does provide us with wisdom, it's not simply that. You have uh, something like the book of Confucius, an Asian monk who has a philosophy about how to live life with, with wisdom. And yet through that, there's nothing tangible about that. It's not real, it's just philosophy of life. Uh, the Bible isn't um, really even able to compare to ancient Egyptian texts that talk about things that happen in, uh, with Egyptian gods or gods that had lives in kind of the God realm or whatever that may be. These aren't tangible things that actually happen. These are things that somebody has written about and then has said this is truth. And that can't be verified in any way. Whereas what we have in the Bible, the majority of the Bible can actually be verified because you can go there. You can see what happened. You can see from other historical texts that this is actually verified. This actually happened. So the Bible was written in time and space. And understanding that those events took place will impact our understanding of the text. So that's why we need to know the background for those events. Not only that, but the Bible was written by real people to real people. So uh, the Bible, across those 1,500 years that I spoke of, uh, it has 40 authors, over 40 authors spanning that time frame from different ages, from different cultures, from different nations. And so this means that each have, each of those over 40 authors, they each have different personalities, they have different writing styles, they have different purposes for their writings. And so if we're going to understand the Bible well, then we need to know the background of who were these writers? Why were they writing these certain things? Who were they writing to? They actually had an audience that they were trying to write to. And so this again helps us to distinguish between that of maybe other religions or other mythological works. So if you think of maybe the ancient Greek writings, I'm sure many of you have heard of the Iliad or the Odyssey. Uh, these are stories that entailed some sense of reality, but ultimately they weren't based on any real people that happened. I think that's one thing that maybe I might be alone in this. As I grew up, I always thought of like the Battle of Troy and the Trojan Horse. And then it wasn't until too long ago that I kind of, it clicked. I was like, oh, that, 
that didn't actually happen. There is no like Battle of Troy. There's no Troy. That, that was fake. That's just poetic language from the Greeks. Odysseus was not a real warrior. Those were just made up stories. So uh, there are even Greek writings that are love letters from one God to another that they see as text for them. And the Bible isn't like that. The Bible isn't even claiming to be like that. The Bible is claiming to be written by actual people that lived through actual events and was intended for a purpose for an actual audience. Um, the definition that I used a second ago, to go back to that real quick, uh, the, the difference between those two um, maybe examples that it was written in time and space and that it was written by actual people to actual people, that definition highlights that, that it's a collection of historical documents. Some of these are eyewitness testimonies of things that actually happened. But not only that it was written by eyewitnesses that actually lived there, but it was written during the time of other eyewitnesses, meaning, like I said a second ago, you can actually verify that these events happened. And then they report supernatural events that take place in specific, uh, in fulfillment of specific prophecies, meaning the events that they're talking about have been preordained by a God who is sovereign and in control, and that it is divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's that people are actually writing these stories. It's not just an angel has dropped down and given a tablet or something of that sense. So the Bible is distinguished from um, other religious texts. Another reason why it's important that we know the background is because the Bible reflects the culture of its day. So uh, just as Pastor Kyler last week, he pointed out that it's important that we understand that words have meaning in their original language for context. We also need to learn the background of the Bible because cultural influences are often going to be communicated through the language that's used in the Bible. So what I mean is the Bible was written in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic, and different cultures at different times used different words to convey the meanings and communicate different parts of their culture through the Bible. So those cultural differences, they're actually going to impact the understanding of the Bible or of the text we're looking at. And so either at best, if we don't know the background, we'll either just stay confused about a confusing text because we don't know the cultural background, or at worst, we could wrongly interpret part of the Bible, and then obviously we can say that it means something that it actually doesn't because we don't know maybe the background that helps us to understand that. To maybe uh, flesh that out a little bit, I have some examples. Uh, has anyone ever read this odd commandment? You can find it in Exodus 23, Exodus 34, as well as Deuteronomy 14. And it says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Does anybody ever read, remember reading that and you were kind of eyebrow raised like, why is that there? What does that have to do with, with anything? Uh, and we can be honest, as modern day 21st century um, English speaking Americans, that's, that's a little weird. We, we don't understand what that means. So how do we understand what that means? Well, the best way we understand that is to understand the cultural background that led to why that was put in there in the first place. So scholars have actually found that in the early ancient Canaanite pagan rituals, the Canaanites were there in the promised land before Israel, uh, the Canaanites would take a baby goat and they would boil it in its mother's milk as part of a pagan religious ritual. And so uh, remember, as we think about God, especially as he was bringing the Israelites into the promised land, God was giving his law, he was giving his commandments, and he was calling Israel to be a holy nation. 
and uh, with college ministry, when we talk about God's holiness, when we talk about understanding what does it mean for God to be holy, the way we think about it is that holiness is to be set apart. God is holy. He's set apart from sin. And so what he was doing, he was calling Israel to be a holy nation, a nation that was set apart from the other nations, a nation that wouldn't take part in the pagan rituals that went on with the nations around them. So he was calling them to live in such a way that would stand out as different than the other nations. And those nations took part in these odd pagan rituals. And so he was telling Israel, don't take part in those. Don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. So it sounds odd at first, but as we understand maybe the cultural background, it becomes less confusing and we gain some clarity. Another example of this would be uh, maybe certain idioms or certain phrases that are used that convey importance. These you're probably more familiar with. So repetition is going to be an important part of certain cultural aspects by way of teaching. So uh, you um, repeat something to draw attention to it, to distinguish it. And we see that God's holiness is one of the things that is drawn attention to three times. So that's why the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. They're drawing attention to his holiness. They're distinguishing God's holiness above all else. Maybe you're also thinking of Jesus' teaching where he says, truly, truly, or verily, verily. He's basically saying, this is really important. You need to understand this. Truly, truly, I say to you. It's really important. Uh, so these were certain cultural cues that we might not understand today, but the cultural background at the time would help us to understand what is going on here, what is being drawn attention to. So um, that's why we want to uh, learn the background. You can see from those various examples uh, the way that the Bible kind of stands out from religious texts, the way that it was written in a certain way, the way that culture really does impact how we understand it. So I want us to transition then into the practical of how. So how then do we actually start to learn the background? Um, and I've kind of sort of already laid it out in these first few points here. It's a little bit of a pathway for us to ask certain questions, to get underneath the text, to understand the background before we jump in and start reading. So for starters, we want to ask, who wrote this? Who is the author that wrote this text? The authorship plays a very important role in the background. So who the author is it can impact our understanding of the text before we even get into the actual words that the author wrote just by way of knowing who they were. Uh, maybe it's the author's role that can help us understand the text as we approach it. So maybe think about how a different book might be write, uh, written by a prophet and maybe the words that would be used, the style that goes into that. Maybe that would differ a little bit from a book of the Bible that was written by a king or someone acting as priest or maybe just a church leader. Those things are going to affect how we understand the text. Now, sometimes we can gather this information from the actual book of the Bible itself. So think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, some of the most uninspiring and least creative names for a book of the Bible. Uh, and yet they were just given those names because that's who wrote the books. We know who wrote them. That's what it was titled. It's not always the case, but in those instances, it works and this helps us know who wrote it, maybe what their background was, what that means for them. Uh, take Luke, for example. So we know a little bit about Luke, a little bit about his background. Luke was a doctor, so he's probably, probably going to have an analytical mind. He's probably going to be very meticulous in how he searches for facts, how he interviews people, which is exactly what he did. Um, he was trying to find out about these certain events that were going on. 
So that's Luke's personality, and that means it's going to impact our understanding coming to the book of Acts or Luke's gospel account. But then in contrast, maybe take Matthew. So Matthew, we know, was Jewish, and so his Jewish background is going to drive the way that he writes his gospel account. And so, obviously, being Jewish, he's going to have a large impact with the Jewish community. He wants to thread that through how he tells the story of Jesus' ministry and the gospel. So we want to find out, if possible, who wrote the book, so that as we start to learn the background, we can learn about the author, learn about what they were trying to get at, what they were trying to communicate, and then go from there. So next, after we ask who wrote it, we want to ask when and where was this written? So this sort of background information is going to affect not just our understanding of the text, but even maybe where it fits in the storyline of the Bible. So where a text was written is going to provide context in helpful ways. For example, maybe if you're reading through some of the minor prophets, to know that a text was written by Amos or Hosea and to understand where it was written, it would help us to know that they were prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel and not in the southern kingdom of Judah. Or maybe knowing that John wrote Revelation on the island of Patmos, that clues us in to let us know a little bit about what's going on to the persecution that John was experiencing or the persecution that was going on to the church at that given time. And so the same goes for reading through maybe Ezekiel, where we understand that he was uh, prophesying during the time of the Babylonian exile. So he was not in Israel at that time. He was exiled. He was in captivity Whereas as we read through Jeremiah and Isaiah, we understand that was written before the foreign invaders, so he was writing that in Israel. So then uh, the, the where is important, but the when is also just as important, maybe even for what I said just then. It helps us understanding the background of where it fits into the timeline. So knowing that a book of maybe one of the prophets was written before exile into captivity, such as Micah or Nahum, versus the return after exile that we read about in Ezra or Malachi. That's going to drastically impact how we understand the story, how we understand what's being conveyed, maybe even the prophetic nature of what's going on in the actual text. All of that is going to help us understand that in the right setting and the right timeline. And uh, even for New Testament books, depending on when you date the book of Revelation, that's actually going to have drastic implications on how you understand some of the apocalyptic literature that's contained within Revelation. So uh, were some of the things spoken of in Revelation, uh, were they talking about the destruction of the temple? Or was Revelation written after the destruction of the temple? Therefore, it's talking about something that's in the future, that's to come. Sometimes those are going to impact how we even understand the text as well. So that's all to do with the initial authorship, who wrote the book, when it was written, even where it was written. But then we also want to ask the question about the audience. So to whom was it written? Who was the audience that the author is writing to? And so like I said at the beginning, culture is going to play a pretty large role in the background of a text, how we understand it, how we read it. And so knowing the original audience is going to help cue us into some of those cultural clues to help us determine what cultural factors are going to be at play. So think again, maybe the differences between the two gospel accounts, between Matthew and Luke. Matthew, coming from a Jewish background, he's a Jewish author, and he's going to be writing to a Jewish audience. And so Matthew takes a lot of time to focus on different aspects of Jewish life, Jewish tradition, 
and obviously Jewish fulfillments in the scriptures that showcase how Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is the Christ to come. Matthew wants to take time to develop that for his Jewish audience and make a, a straight line for some of those prophetic fulfillments that Jesus fulfilled. But then you have Luke, on the other hand, who he's trying to take an accurate account of events. He's the fact finder. He's the doctor. He's also not Jewish. So he's coming from a Greek Gentile background, and he's writing to a Greek and Gentile audience. So Luke wants to show that Jesus isn't simply a savior for the Jews, though he does highlight that, but he wants to showcase that Jesus is a savior for the whole world. And so this is actually why if you've read through Matthew, if you've read through Luke, and you notice there's some differences between the genealogies, it's not that they're wrong or they got their names wrong or their dates wrong on that, but it's because of the author and the audience. So Matthew is trying to highlight Jesus's lineage through a certain line to Abraham to show that he is a true Jew from the tribe of Judah all the way back to Father Abraham. Whereas Luke is going to highlight Jesus' lineage through a different line all the way back to the first man, Adam, to show that he's related to the very first Adam who fell in sin and Jesus is the one who has come to save the entire world. So different authors, yes, but also different audiences, which is why we would understand them in different contexts. And so then you can also think about how an audience or maybe the recipient can impact the nature of the letter. So think in your mind of First and Second Timothy. So that's an example of a title not being the author, but rather the recipient. Um, First and Second Timothy is written to Timothy, who's a younger brother in the faith of Paul. He's uh, been raised up as a leader. He's been established to raise leaders in the churches outside of Jerusalem and where Paul has sent him out. Paul has been discipling Timothy. He's been helping Timothy grow. And so knowing a little bit about that background with Timothy and Paul and their relationship, it helps us to understand why Paul has so much instructive language in his epistles to Timothy. He's telling him how to establish churches, how to provide church structure, how to provide church polity or governance within those churches. Another example would be knowing that the audience of a book is a specific Christian audience in a specific place. So think about the book of Romans, a Roman church of Christians, um, and that helps us to decipher maybe who the author might be referencing. So if the author uses terms of all of you, well, is that a plural to reference all of humanity? Is that a reference to all of the church there in Rome? Sometimes those are going to be the distinguishing factors to help us understand certain phrases like that, just by way of knowing who is the audience. Another question about the audience that we um, can use as a helpful tool in learning about the background is knowing where were the recipients? So where were or where was the audience? What setting did they find themselves in uh, if it was to be different from the author? So in some instances, the author would be writing to an audience where they were in the same geographical location, under the same cultural kind of uh, parameters, and yet sometimes the author is writing to a different continent or to a different group in a different place, and that plays a part in how we understand the background as well. So uh, for some context, an example, maybe if a book's audience was in a Hebrew setting like we've talked about, within maybe even Old Testament, within the nation of Israel, uh, during the reign of King David, then that's going to have a drastic difference in how we understand the uh, receiving of this text to that audience than someone maybe in a New Testament context where they're in a Hellenized Greek 
context with Roman authority over top of that. They're going to read certain texts in a different way. So that's why we get some examples of the disciples in the New Testament having this idea that the Messiah is going to come overthrow the Roman government because they've been oppressed by Rome. Whereas maybe somebody in the Old Testament might see that in a different context. And that's because of where the audience is actually residing, what the setting of the audience is. And so you can kind of see this logical progression that we're going through with these different questions. One question will sort of bring up another question, which brings up another question. And so these questions are just helpful just to walk through as you start to approach a text. So moving from the author, who the author was, where he wrote it, when he wrote it, to the audience, who is it written to, where were they at, where were they located, we want to move to uh, more of descriptive questions, like what was happening? So what was happening there at that place where the audience was, or maybe where the actual author was? Now, this can be a question for both, like I said, for the author as well as the audience. And both are important, and both uh, can influence our approach. So, uh, again, example, for knowing that an epistle, or the audience of an epistle, is a church community, uh, maybe that church community was undergoing intense persecution, or maybe there was sin and dissension within that church community that was going uh, unaddressed. Or maybe there was false doctrine or false teaching that was being espoused from the leaders of that church. And knowing these certain things that were going on in those churches, that's important for us to know as we approach the text, to know what's going on in the context there. Now, sometimes a book itself, a book of the Bible, will actually reveal that to us as we start to read it. So think in your minds of the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, it talks about, it says, uh, in that day, everyone did what was right in their own mind. So that gives us a clue into what was going on during that time period for that group of people. This lets us know that the people were abandoning God. They weren't following God's commandments. Or maybe it's helpful to know that the actual author is undergoing persecution. And maybe that's what's causing this book or this letter to be written. And that helps us to give a little bit of a background to start with as well. And then lastly, as we work through all these questions, we want to kind of land on maybe one of the more important questions, which is, why was it written? So what are the circumstances that are requiring this to actually be written? As best as we can, we want to understand uh, the background of why a specific author wrote a specific text at a specific time to a specific audience. So if we can begin with those things in mind and in sight, then it'll serve sort of as guardrails as we read through a text so that we don't err one way or the other. Um, one of the things that's helpful to think through as we're thinking through why an author wrote a certain text is to remember that a, a specific text, a specific portion of scripture can't mean something to us that it did not also mean to the original audience. I'll say that again. A specific text can't mean something to us that it didn't also mean to the original audience. So we want to know why it was written. So, uh, for example, if we think of the book of Revelation gets uh, kind of bullied a lot. And if we think of the book of Revelation as just some super secret kind of code book for Christians of the future to unlock based on modern events that are happening, and that's the only way that we can understand the true meaning of Revelation, then we rob the original audience of that original authorial 
intent and purpose. We have to remember that the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation with a specific purpose in mind. And he wrote the book with the specific purpose of encouraging the churches, of building up the churches, of getting the church's minds and their eyes on the coming of Christ, that one day Christ will reign victorious, so that as they endure persecution, they know that it's not in vain, that Christ wins in the end. That's why John wrote it. And now there are some things that we can understand might not be fully realized to one group that the Bible was written to as it is as another group. We understand that uh, people in the Old Testament did not know that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was going to be the Messiah. So there are some aspects that are fully realized as Scripture progresses through time. But ultimately, we have to remember what it was originally written to the original audience is going to be the original purpose. That's going to be why it was written. Now, the application might be somewhat different for our current cultural context, but ultimately we have to keep in mind, why was it written to the original audience? Another um, way that we see this play out is maybe knowing that an epistle was written to encourage and to lift up a church. It helps us to then understand it better, maybe in that same light, or to know that Paul had specific uh, false doctrines that he was correcting in his letters, that helps us understand the focus of Paul's like admonishments to the church, encouragements to the church. And then again, even in the Old Testament, knowing that the law was written down to remind the nation of Israel that their God was a holy God and that his law was perfect and that he had saved Israel as a picture of his covenantal love and that this was be, to be remembered as an example of his promise-keeping nature. Those things were written down so that they wouldn't forget. And so for us, we can't take it and strip that of its original meaning to make it mean something to us that it didn't also mean to the Israelites. And so as we come to somewhat of a close, I want to give us maybe some tools and some resources. Some of this might feel like a little bit of a repeat from last week with Kyler's uh, tools and resources. Um, these are just some helpful things because as you walk through these questions, you might be thinking, well, these questions are helpful, but I'd rather just have the answers to the questions than you just giving me the questions themselves, which makes sense. Uh, so first and foremost, sometimes the way that we would learn the answer to these questions about the background of a text is to actually read the text itself. So sometimes simply reading through various books of the Bible is going to help illuminate some of these questions to us. Sometimes other books of the Bible are going to provide a little bit of clarity to other books of the Bible. You might think of First Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, and First and Second Kings. There are going to be a lot of overlapping narratives there, even First and Second Samuel. These are different ways that some narratives will give a little bit clarity on other narratives that some won't, as well as the gospel accounts. We have four different gospel accounts, not that they're different in actually what happened, but that they're going to highlight certain aspects. We looked at that with Matthew and Luke. Even the Gospel of John, John seeks to point to Christ as the one who has come, the sacrificial, uh, the sacrificial lamb, to save us from our sins. John is not painting a different Jesus. He's just giving a different vantage point on the Jesus that truly is. And so sometimes we read the Bible um, seeking to understand some of these background, maybe cultural, maybe timing through the actual text itself. Another uh, resource that would be more of an external resource that I just I really highly recommend, uh, in fact, would almost implore you to own and to use, is simply a study Bible. I know you probably hear that a lot here. Uh, my favorite is the Crossway ESV Study Bible. It's very simple. It's very basic. It's to the point. Um, each book of the Bible has a few uh, pages before it of kind of basic, general background information that actually walks through these various questions. 
So it's going to talk about who is the author of this book. Or if the author is unknown, maybe like Hebrews, it might give some estimated guesses as to who it is, or either just say, we really don't know. But here's some themes you can see through the writing. It's also going to talk about when this was written, or when it's estimated that this was written, who it was written to, what was going on, the context of maybe the time and place that the audience was living in. Uh, those informational pages are also going to walk through different themes throughout the book. It's also going to walk through maybe the structure of the book of the Bible. And I just like it because it's so easy, it's manageable, it's right there in the front of each book as you're reading through the Bible. I use the ESV study Bible every morning, sit there, coffee in one hand, ESV Bible in the other, nervous that I'm going to spill it. Um, it's really helpful for me as I'm reading through books of the Bible, all the information right there, simple. Um, now, there are multiple other different versions of study Bibles. You have uh, the Reformation Study Bible. You have the John MacArthur Study Bible. I'm sure there are plenty of other ones that I'm forgetting. Um, there are even study Bibles that actually will focus in on maybe certain aspects. So I have a archaeology study Bible, uh, and it has different footnotes and, and different... Um, helpful resources throughout it that focus on a lot of the geographical, historical, archaeological evidences of different things, the cultural background. You can find maybe themed study Bibles like a systematic theology study Bible. So what it will do is it will trace different systematic theology themes throughout the Bible as you read through. And so those are always helpful. I think a lot of times we want to jump to maybe some of the really deep things or maybe the massive set of commentaries and everything like that. And sometimes just the text itself and maybe a, a study Bible is the most helpful. I don't have room for 15 different commentary sets on my coffee table, but I have room for my study Bible. So that's the first and foremost, I think the easiest way to help with some of these different questions as well. Um, of course, there are plenty other, maybe more in-depth resources that you can use. Um, I know that, I think Pastor Kyler mentioned Blue Letter Bible. Uh, you have an app version of it. You can find it online. It's really useful. It's really helpful. You click on words, and it gives you the original Greek and Hebrew meaning. It gives you all the different ways that it's been used throughout the Bible. It's a really user-friendly um, resource. So sometimes there are some resources that are electronic that are just confusing to use. And Blue Letter Bible is a really helpful one to kind of dive deeper and really get some of the answers maybe you're looking for. And then, of course, commentaries. Commentaries are going to be helpful. Uh, those are going to be helpful probably more for the text itself and how we interpret the text. But, of course, a lot of commentaries are going to provide some sort of background information, uh, a lot of what we talked about, the author, the setting, when it was written, who it was written to all of those different questions. Um, and if you have specific questions on some of these uh, different um, resources or if you're looking for new resources, please uh, stop me after this and, and definitely ask. We'd be more than happy to point you to a few of them. Um, but I hope you see tonight how the background is important. Uh, the, the way that we're working through this seminar is learning to read the Bible well, learning to understand the Bible well, and a lot of that places a heavy emphasis on context. If we don't have a right understanding of the context by way of interpreting the words, like we talked about last week, and even the background that we find ourselves in, then, like I said, the, the guardrails won't be there, and we can easily go awry. And like I said at the beginning, my, my heart for all of you here is not that we would just have kind of an intellectual ascent of how to read the Bible. I don't want us to see the Bible as simply some uh, study tool or some academic exercise for us. 
But like I said, the, contained within these covers are the words of life. And I want to equip you so that you can study them, so that you can marinate on them, that you can meditate, that these can be truths that you can hold to, that this can be the way that we can actually grow and flourish as Christians, that you would see the importance of taking up the, uh, the mantle of doing this seriously and uh, to developing that discipline in your own lives. So we're wrapping up a little bit early. I'm going to pray for us, and then you guys are dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time tonight. We thank you that your word is so rich and so deep that even the sharpest minds among us can try to understand it as best they can for years and years to study it and never reach the bottom of it. And yet it can be so simple that even the youngest amongst us can read it and to see your goodness and your glory in the gospel. I pray that tonight would be helpful, that you would equip your people to better study and hear from your word, that we would take seriously the call to be um, disciplined in our reading of your word, and that as we seek to do that, that your spirit would move in our hearts and our minds to change our affections for Christ, to give us understanding, to be able to apply what you have uh, revealed through your word to us, and that ultimately that this would be for your glory as we see the church become uh, more and more like Christ and that we would live that out in our own lives. We thank you and we love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.